Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined in the studio by David Moser, academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. How are you, David? Great. And via Skype from Nashville, Tennessee, by the notorious Dean Yumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How is it going there, Jeremy? I'm doing very, very well indeed, Kaiser. Thank you. For good asking. to hear your How voice. I'm good, man. It was good to have you back in Beijing for that while. It was nice. It was very nice to be back in Beijing. Indeed. Well, so as surely all of our listeners know, the scientist Tuyoyo has won the 2015 Nobel Prize awarded for physiology or medicine. This was, as you're also all doubtless aware, the first time that a science Nobel has been given to a Chinese national. Of course, there have been ethnically Chinese scientists who've won in the past, uh, but uh, many, it, right, many, quite, quite, quite a number. Chinese yeah. scientists. <laughs> But, but no no PRC citizens, at least not in science. <laughs> Tuyoyo, who is now 84 years old, led the team that developed artemisinin, a, uh, or Qinghaosu, I think it's called in Chinese. Right? It's the frontline drug in the battle against malaria, which is credited with having saved and continues to save millions of lives in malaria-infested areas, especially in Africa and in Asia. So there are a great many angles to this story from the fact that artemisinin came out of traditional the traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia. Uh, also, the fact that Tuyoyo herself was quite an outsider to the Chinese S&T system. So today we welcome back two guests to talk about Tuyoyo's remarkable achievement, as well as questions that it raises. So first up, Christina Larson, who covers science in China for a number of publications. Uh, great to see you, Christina. Thanks, Kaiser. Good to be here. And so we're also going to want to talk to you about your excellent piece in foreign policy about Zhao Bowen, who is on the other end of the age spectrum, you might say. Uh, he's, what, 23? Yep. Yeah, well, yeah. And uh, like Madam, too, he's also very much outside the system. So uh, that was a great piece. We're looking forward to talking about that with you. And we're also just absolutely delighted to have in the studio with us Ian Johnson of the New York Times. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ian. Hey, glad to be here. And you guys want to play a little bit of Jeopardy-style China knowledge quiz? Uh, I, I, <laughs> <Not> today. <laughs> so, it's a Sunday morning, Kaiser. Right. So um, I, I don't know if you guys – maybe we'll, we have a recording of it, and at least a video recording. But we had this great um, – Ian, tell us about that that, that experience. Well, we had a, actually, it was a lot of fun. Kaiser hosted a Jeopardy-style quiz game at the Bookworm. And I completely flamed out, ending up with a negative score because I guessed too often, which you're but anyway, it was, it not was supposed fun. to do in so, Jeopardy. Ben Blanchard of Reuters won. Yeah, followed yeah. by Anthony Anthony Kuhn, yeah, of, of NPR. And then Lucy Hornby had a really, really strong showing as well. And Ian, you, you at least you caused great mirth for my my son who was in attendance. He was just cackling every time your score showed up, and you were like, in the <laughs> "It was fun. Well, you were you were great." And you you actually got some really obscure questions too. That's me. Yeah, you knowing did. the obscure he, stuff, but not the important. <laughs> anyway, so let, let's jump in and talk first about the research that's been um, you know it was, it was done like forty years ago that resulted in a very belated uh, Nobel for Tuyoyo. So Ian. Tell us about this Project 523 and the whole background to, I mean, maybe the, the backstory to the discovery of Ar artemisinin. Well, the back backstory is that Chinese scientists have been looking at the Chinese pharmacopoeia since the 1930s. And in fact, when the Peking Union Medical College opened in the 1930s, they started to look at stuff. And they were very skeptical about Chinese drugs, but they thought to be sort of polite, they would look at the Chinese 
herbal tradition. And the first thing they found was ephedrine in Mahuang. Hmm. And so that got them thinking, wow, there is actually some active ingredient in this stuff. It's not completely superstitious. And then they began to think of malaria because Chinese traditional medicine has a lot of anti-febrile disease uh, products. And they looked at a number of herbs, including Qinghao, including Changshan, and some other herbs. But this was in the 1940s. There was the war and then civil war, and this whole thing sort of broke down. They restarted it in the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, it got a huge boost because of the Vietnam War. And of course, there was malaria was killing apparently more North Vietnamese and Chinese especially North Vietnamese soldiers, then apparently the Americans were. So they were very, or at least incapacitating them. So they wanted some sort of solution and mobilized everybody in China, all the scientists in China that weren't, you know, tending pigs during the Cultural Revolution. And they, um, they put their uh, mind behind this. And the first, one of the first things they did was to build off this prior research and say, what can we pull out of the herbal tradition. And uh, Tuyoyo was the head of a team, and they isolated the active ingredient. And artemisinin is the final result of that as a chemical product resulting from the herbal plant, um, artemisia. Artemisia. Qinghao. Yeah, yeah, Qinghao. We should just use Chinese, Qinghao Su. It's much easier. Qinghao Su is the chemical product, and Qinghao is the uh, plant. Mm-hmm. Su is just sort of like, um, it's, it's a word that means kind of distilled essence of or something like that, right? Or, yeah. Or, By the way, just a sideline, just uh, there was something in the, in the news the other day about Tuoyo's name comes from, the, the yo-yo is from the Book of Odes. Book of Odes, that's right, from... And uh, it turns out that in the very poem in the Book of Odes, it mentions it mentions Qing Hao Su. Oh, that I did not know. A that very is so cosmic wait, wait, wait. coincidence. Really, it does. Yeah, it, yes. it mentions yeah. Qing Hao because yo it, it how it has the word how, and they say that's the same plant. So the yo-yo is the sound of deer braying, it says. Right, right, and so right, the deer right. bray, and they eat the, the how. The, the and how they plant. never get malaria. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so but it, the, the interesting thing is that the, the book where she actually seems to have gotten this from um, was this Manual of Clinical Practice and Emergency Remedies by this guy named Ge Hong, uh, who lived in, I think, at the 4th century. I mean, it was like four, three, 340 AD, right, um, in the Eastern Jin uh, I, I, what I loved was how they had they had actually come up with this terrific translation of the title of that manual. It's emergency prescriptions kept up one's sleeve, <laughs> right? I mean, so you know, to keep something up your sleeve in, in English um, is is a, is terrific. You know, it's 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 a great little idiom. But you know, this is quite literally. It's like I think they mean keep it hand because you're keep it your no, no, it's, it's actually it's it's actually kept in the sleeve. Chinese right. gentlemen used to have stuff. It's 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 literally. You know, right. recipes behind the elbow, right. behind the 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 zhou, the zhou, right? The zhou hole, right? You could hide a lot of things in those sleeves. <laughs> right? Indeed, right. still do. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing up my sleeve, presto. That's I a think one thing to reference. Yeah. One thing to sort of mention is that this wasn't something that had been used in the fourth century and had never been used since. It had been used and continuously. continuously. Yeah. And in fact, when she tried to figure out how to distill it, um, she just went to traditional Chinese clinical practice. For some reason, it's not really clear when she, the story is that she first tried boiling it in water and that didn't 
it seems to destroy the active agent, right? But in fact, in clinical practice in Chinese medicine, it's never boiled in water. It's always put into the prescription afterwards. It's ho fang, so it's always oh. put. And in, it's soaked in cold water. Soaked in cold water, broken. So, so then she got the idea of using ether. She used ether, right, to do yeah. extract it, right, right, right. Which, which is, is her... part of the reason why she actually ended up winning the thing, because you know she came up with the idea of 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 how to extract right. it. Um, so, so that was maybe why her and not other members of her team were were awarded the prize. There was some controversy around who actually was most deserving of the actual Nobel itself, right? I think so. Yeah, there have been a number of people who've written accounts of this. Um, one of the team members wrote a, a report called a belated report, Chirdao de Balgal. And he explained that just wanted to reemphasize that yes, she was a team leader, but this was a huge collective enterprise. It was supported by the military when they did clinical trials. They could round up thousands of people, um, and in maybe in some ways, it's you know the problem with the with the the Nobel is it's this sort of nineteenth century European idea that you have this great heroic scientist right. who comes right. up with some idea. It's never given to a collective. The Peace Prize can be. But the science and the other prizes are always given to one individual, mm. and they may sort of give a nod to other people who helped out. But um, so they had to give it to somebody. So I suppose if you have to do that, she's deserving. But I mean, I think this really, really was a collective project, and it was really emblematic of Maoist policies and in, in, in just this mass mobilization of people and getting thousands of scientists or at one point in her team just her individual team she had 50 people working under her at first she was alone and then when she started to get success it was like okay throw people at it in a mm, way mm-hmm. that it's hard to imagine does anyone know the actual science so what, what does artemisinin actually do to the malaria parasite in the blood i mean does, does anyone know the actual way by which it debilitates it no nobody okay. i don't know Jeremy, you there, man? I'm, I, I am indeed here, oh, good, but good. I'm sorry, I'm not qualified to explain the exact I wasn't going to ask you about that. I was, I was going <laughs> to ask you about, um, you know, maybe if you know the story about how she actually managed to obs- uh, emerge from obscurity uh, after all of this time. Um, actually, it was some, some time ago, right? I mean, this, uh, the big thing she won the Lasker, right? Yeah, right. three years ago when she got that. Um, Three years ago, four years four ago. Four years ago, yes, two thousand. No, no, 2011. actually, two thousand. Yeah, but yeah. she, she, the, 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 search for her began in earnest in oh seven, is, is what I remember, and then that's when, when it was determined that she was the person who was, you know, sort of the, the mother of artemisinin. Um, anyway, uh, she's talked about as, as the professor of the three nos. Has anyone heard about that? She's that she has no doctoral degree, no research experience internationally. You know, everyone else has and no membership in the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Um, what, let's, let's, let's talk about the, the, the CAS. Um, Christina, you, you've, you've, you've been looking at, at the, the S&T establishment in China. Can you tell us a little bit about the CAS, the, the Chinese Academy of Sciences? Sure. Um, well, just to also sort of iron out the segue a little bit, um, you know, this, as we've already mentioned, was the first time that a Chinese national in China has been awarded a Nobel Prize in anything other than <laughs> literature and the Peace Prize. Um, so it's a big deal, and you see a lot of sort of congratulatory notes from Li Keqiang and um, you know comments on Weibo and other places, sort of saying, "Oh, this is a great thing. This proves Chinese science is really coming on to the international stage." And it's a, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question because what we've talked about today 
you know, with Ian's description of how this uh, discovery was arrived at, this is very, very different than the modern Chinese science and technology system. Um, so it, it, her work was incredibly important, uh, as Kaiser mentioned, in, in preventing, you know, deaths millions, millions of deaths of people, in yeah. Asia and Africa. Um, but it's not, it's not emblematic necessarily of the rest of the Chinese science and technology system today, for better or for worse. Um, so science is interesting. I mean, Ian gave you a little bit of the sort of pre- and post-cultural uh, revolution history of science in China. And I guess I would start maybe talking about it from Deng Xiaoping. So when he talked about the four modernizations, mm -hmm. right? I mean, science was the fulcrum. Science was what would make um, modern industry, modern Military, defense, right, and right. Uh, modern agriculture possible. Um, and so there, and, and there's always been, I mean, at least for the past three decades, a lot of talk about scientific development. I mean, this is a sort of common sort of thing you hear threaded through bureaucratic language, um, talking about what's important or, you know, China's direction. Um, so there's been a lot of official attention to, to science in China, which is a bit different um, than the way science has, modern science has operated in the West, where you have a lot of respected research universities, of course, but it's not as much uh, in the U.S. and Western Europe directed by, by the, the states, central government, right? right, right? right. I mean, the, you know, Washington isn't, uh, setting with some, a, with some a, exceptions, right. setting out the, the policy objectives. Yeah, it's not saying X percent of GDP is going to be spent on R&D, on, 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 on Exactly, right, exactly. Right, right. So the debate over the last couple of years, especially in um, D.C., um, where I've also worked, is, is people are a bit afraid of how much China is spending on science and the very ambitious goals and things like the medium and long-term development goal. Um, and you hear about the seven strategic emerging industries and the amount of money that China is, is devoting to it. Um, at the same time, um, by other metrics, and it's imperfect, uh, you know, all metrics are imperfect, uh, but one could argue that China isn't getting as much bang for its many bucks. Yeah, as yeah, it's, it's not getting an, uh, a return on investment, right? In sure, RTC. sure. So the World Bank has a, you know, keeps track of how much money is paid um, for use of IP from different countries, and if China is you know, significantly below Singapore and Korea. And, um, you know, of course, the U.S. is on top. That's right. Um, Japan is, you know, I think number two or three. Um, so there's been a, an, before the Nobel, there's been an ongoing debate over the past five or so years within the Chinese S&T system about how are we spending so much money? What are we getting out of it and how can we fix it? Um, and a lot of focus has come on to the, the research culture and the, the sort of, demands placed on scientists. Um, and so when goals are set from the top, you know, there's a natural movement to people want to, I mean, scientists feel that in order to get funding, they need to formulate their research toward those goals. And sometimes that works well. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, it's an inhibition. You're, you're saying it's, it's, it's the funding goes into more practical things like military applications and not, not what we would call uh, just free experimentation or, or, or Well, there, there's two research. things. One, one is the nature of the research, whether it's practical or whether it's sort of what we call blue sky research, which right, is sort right. of theoretical. Um, but the other question is how the research goals are determined. And so there's been a lot of question about whether or not the government should take a lesser role and allow scientists to formulate the goals themselves. So in the case of two, I mean, uh, this was a massive government project, maybe, you know, once in a 
not even once in a lifetime, but maybe <laughs> once in a <laughs> millennium, you know, event in which, you know, a big government goal mass mobilization of research led to a really important discovery. That's not usually how modern science works. Do you, feel also, like, do you feel like the lesson that's being taken away from Tuyoyo's uh, winning of the Nobel is more of a rebuke then to the S&T system, you know, the official S&T system, or is, is it um, in, in any sense sort of uh, proof that top-down approaches work? I mean, I think, you know, it's human nature that when there's a winner, everybody wants to claim that winner on their side. So I think she's she and her story are being spun in many different ways by people looking to prove a point. So I think, you know, some are embracing her as, you know, this validates Chinese traditional medicine, which I think is a bit of an overstatement. And, you we'll, know, we'll talk have, about that in right, a second. Yeah. And, so, and some are saying, you know, this this validates Chinese S&T, you know, as it is. Um, the, there's a very good um, scholar at the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah, yeah. This is a very good piece. Yeah. Who's written a great piece Yen about Huang is his name. Exactly. Yeah. And he focuses on global health, um, who said, you know, she... You know, she's sort of the exception that proves the rule. She's someone who wasn't embraced by the modern Chinese uh, S&T system. She, mm -hmm. you know, several times um, was on the list of people to be considered to be named an ac academician of the Chinese Academy of Scientists, um, which she was, which she didn't Rejected get. You know, to, she yeah, doesn't have, sure. she hasn't had a leadership role in, in modern Chinese science. So... I, I think first, uh, it really bears pointing out that Christina has on top of her head a bean sprout. You really do. I mean, it's really you're you're talking all this stuff, and it's brilliant, and and uh, you know, and you've got a bean. Well, sprout who says there's no innovation in China? <laughs> Haven't you read Chris Buckley's no, I mean, Twitter feed? Really, she's 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 wearing a bean sprout on top of her head, and this is you're the first non-Chinese person I've seen sporting this. How do you know she's not a genetically modified human being? <laughs> Maybe you should explain what it looks like, Kaiser, for people who haven't. It's because you were down in Shenzhen. Oh, so, no, I mean, if, 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 if nobody's been ignorant of this trend. Everyone knows that, 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 that young Chinese people are wearing little plastic plants. I'm thinking like a, a life-size watermelon is what I'm going to go for. Four-leaf four clover, three-leaf clover. It's a three-leaf. I it's wish a, they had uh, four-leaf clover. Uh, uh, I, I feel like that clover. was a Oh, it's not a bean sprout. Okay, from this angle, offered. it looked like a bean sprout. All right. Maybe it's an Artemisian plant. Or Artemisian or whatever. Qinghaosu plant. I would just say, though, in, <laughs> in defense of the establishment, if you want it to be a little more... Um, critical, or, or say, of, of the discovery. Here's somebody who basically worked heavily on other people's research and took something that was a no-duh. Like, people have been using Qinghao to treat malaria. And you by and, and she got the active ingredient out by using ether, which is one of the most common, common solvents. Ways. In, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like some great innovation, right? She was the head of a team. She was, I don't want to say the figurehead, but, you know, and there's a guy at, at uh, Peking University, Raoui, who's written a history of this. And he said there were other people who were head of it, and they got in political trouble in the Cultural mm. Revolution, and they got sent down to t 10 pigs. The implication being that, you know, if that hadn't happened to them, they would have headed the project. And some guy got called off uh, to work. But, uh, Ian, hang on. Um, I mean, don't you think, uh, and I'd like at this point to refer, uh, refer to the article that was just published, I think, a few hours ago uh, on the New York Times website uh, written by you uh, about this sort of controversy about um, the contribution to Chinese medicine or what this means for Chinese medicine. Um, uh to me, uh, she was the person who did it. She was the person who used actual scientific methods and pushed it through, tested it, did repeatable tests 
right. so that one that's could actually... Not the, that's not what, I, I, what I'm just saying is that a lot of other people were in the position to do it, but because of the political whirlwind at the time, she was the last person standing. So getting, she wasn't, you know, the sort of brilliant scientist who came up with an innovative idea and used some different methods. She was just a person that in the political context of the Cultural Revolution had, was probably very careful, very cautious, kept her head down, memorized Mao's quotations enough so she could stay ahead of the team. And she then ended up as the sort of figurehead for this success, which is an amazing success, no doubt about it. But it's just, again, maybe the problem of the Nobel Prize, and you have to find one person. So. Right. Hmm. One thing that... Yeah, fair enough, but I mean, that, that, that would apply to most people who've achieved things in China. I mean, you know, Jack Ma, you know, uh, whoever you, you want to say. I mean, it's the people who kept their head down and didn't get into political trouble and managed to survive who 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 flourished and succeeded. Well, that was no? the Cultural Revolution. Well, this was an intense period. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, yeah. A, a, a different kind of a political campaign. Um, Jeremy, though, I think what you really want to, to push back on, though, what you really want to push back on this is this idea that the Chinese pharmacopoeia, or that this is a vindication of yes. Chinese medicine in yes. some way. Yes. I can feel you. Yes. I can just, even across the <laughs> distance, I can, I can feel that you're, 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 you're wanting You feel to... him through the yeah. ether, the other ether. Okay, the other so ether. this is the deal. Uh, suddenly there are articles uh, about how this is a vindication of Chinese medicine. And of course it's not. Uh, it's in fact a, a vindication of, uh, I reject the term Western medicine. It's a, it's a, it's a vindication of the scientific method of something that you can test and repeat and repeat and repeat again. And that works in sufficient numbers. Uh, I don't this think it's a vindication of that. It's a vindication of, 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 of being able medicine, to chemical uh, yin and yang of kind of the bullshit that Chinese doctors will will will, will give you where they uh, adjust medicines and give you various herbs. This is an indication of looking at the Chinese pharmacopoeia, figuring out that there's a herb that has something in it that appears to have an effect, and then testing it and testing it again until the point at which you realize you have something that actually works and is repeatable. Ian, um, you wanted to respond to that? Um, well, I, I think, think of it like this. Say you're gold mining and you want to find gold. And some guy says, look over here in this field. And not only that, go down this shaft with me. And not only that, here's a vein that works. And you start you say, great, thanks for that. You've got a, a little pick hammer. I've got a giant drill. I can do it much more effectively. And then the person says, not only that, but you're drilling in the wrong direction. Drill this direction. Afterwards, you get out this huge haul of gold that could never have been gotten out with a pickaxe because you've got modern technology. And then wouldn't it be odd, though, to then say, that person who took me there, who showed me how it works, has nothing to do with it? That uh, all the theories that that person used to figure that out are completely irrelevant. That's fair, but, that but I think let, let's, 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 let's take this. Let's take this this metaphor and and go one step further. Let's say that that person uh, happened upon this and claims that it's because he used this kind of gold divining rod to to do, do that. Do you then have to believe in the gold divining rod? No, of course not. You 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 because it was an accident, right? No, it's not an accident, but or, it was because this person, you know maybe what they're really looking at is the occurrence of other minerals that suggest, you know, that, that a high likelihood of gold being present. Maybe they're looking at, you know, a, a long tradition that's been handed down across many generations of knowing, you know, what sorts of terrain 
uh, in this vicinity, uh, gold can be found in. in, in right, in, in, but you in, wouldn't respect that knowledge. You would say that's. I would respect rubbish. that knowledge, but I would. What I would do is I would distinctly separate, as Jeremy suggests, uh, the 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 whole. Uh, apparatus that's been appended to it. So in, in this case, let's get away from the metaphor. We're talking about efficacious compounds that do appear in, I think, not just like, just like willow bark, right? Aspirin is, is derived from the bark right. of the willow tree. I mean, this is, this is you know, something that we, we will go on and find again. Quinine, right? Quinine. I mean, Quinine. All, all of these, these things, these, these compounds, there is efficacy. There's aspirin. no, no question. Willow bark is aspirin. That's right. Willow bark is aspirin. Um, it would, and a lot of the other pharmacopoeia have been dead ends, so it would be as if this miner had a hundred different mines, and this was the only one that actually had paid dirt. It's a little bit more like that. Um, but I think you'd have to then say there are clearly a lot of things in Chinese medicine that millions of people every day in China think <clears throat> work. Um, but in terms of Chinese medicine, it does usually almost never works with one herb or mineral being applied for one ailment. So that's why there haven't been any successes since that. I mean, there's been one with pishuang, which is white arsenic, being used for bai shui bing, what's that? Uh, leukemia. Leukemia, right. right. Um, so there's, you know, there are some examples. What's about marijuana, is... Ian? Um, marijuana <laughs> right. was, is also in the traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia. And now in my new adoptive country, this is recognized as a, a, a medical... Uh, so traditional Western medicine. Uh, Conveniently. Conveniently. Medical effect. There, yeah, there, well, there I mean, you. <laughs> you would, uh, I, I think this is what a lot of people in Chinese medicine said, and they said that in the article. The guy said, on the one hand, I think it's great that this worked and helped people out, but I feel sad because if this is the way, the only way that Chinese medicine can gain legitimacy, then it's a pretty... It's yeah, a pretty and this is thing. the only way, the scientific method. It's not uh, Western. No, Jeremy, it's you don't, I don't I've, I've heard this <laughs> rubbish. You have to have something out. that God, that other podcast that you so had on Chinese medicine was no, such no, nonsense. It, it, it has been repeated. <laughs> so, Listen, yeah, I, I don't a, think I, you understand what the science is. So I have method. an honest question, because you're more familiar with Tu's research than I am. Was there anything, I mean, do you think it's fair that we can say there are things that she disproved? I mean, are there aspects of Chinese medicine or, or the pharmacopoeia that she disproved in the course of, uh, you know, sort of seeing which, you know, the impacts of various compounds? I don't think she disproved it. I mean, I not intentionally, but I mean, you know, if you're yeah, trying to Yeah, I mean, I think when they looked at works. the research, they also tried another herb, which is used for fighting malaria, Changshan. And that, that uh, has a high toxicity. And so if you're trying to isolate the active ingredient, it has a lot of side effects. Right. Now, in Chinese medicine, it's used in a sort of array of a dozen or 15 different herbs, which mitigate the toxicity. So... But that was not suitable for a Western pharmaceutical product because in you know Western pharmaceutical product you want to have the one, one specific ingredient. right. And then uh, this is a problem when I mean because I've in my earlier life when I, I was also like Christina you know writing a lot about about science and technology. Uh, one of the things that I would you know when I would do biotech stories I would con I would ask about in, in the drug discovery comp uh, uh, process how how useful is it to look at the Chinese pharmacopoeia. And most of the time, most of the people that I talk to, even though they would say, they would say, I personally believe in the efficacy of this, 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 and this Chinese medicines, we can't say, we can't isolate the, the active ingredient. There are thousands of, of, of actual potential candidate compounds in these. The, the, you know, the, the, the admixture of these different ingredients is, it, it, it varies so widely across, you know, different practitioners of medicine that, that it, it, it's, 
you know, to do the actual screening is laborious, time well, Maybe this gets back to our point on, on R&D. There's almost no R&D done on that. The R&D is I, I, simply I, trying to find another Qing hmm. Su. It's not done on what the compounds do on, on people. How they interact. Yeah, so the, the research is fundamentally flawed, um, and it is not really done. There is no real science. So when Jeremy says, I, I take your point, Jeremy says, why don't we have scientific research that shows this? Well, it's not done. Now, is that Chinese medicine's fault, or is that the... I don't know whose fault. That, it yes, is. it's Chinese medicine's fault. Well, who should they, they do? Don't like... Want to the Chinese med medical establishment does not want to do repeatable tests. Oh, I don't think that's because true, it really. will prove that like eighty percent of Chinese medicine is complete bullshit. Yeah. Um, of course, whereas, you know the well, answer I, already, I mean, so we don't need to do the test. Because Jeremy knows eighty percent. Twenty percent that isn't bullshit. They should prove that by scientific methods. This which must means be the marijuana repeatable tests. No. <laughs> um, yeah, right, dude. Um, but, I mean, since we haven't done the studies, we don't really know. You called right? me dude. <laughs> I, I'm trying to make you feel at home. That's, what, that's when Ian is really taking you on. I mean, he's standing up for what he believes in. No, I mean, look, if, if the research hasn't been done, then you can take on the state administration tra for traditional Chinese medicine or the scientific establishment in China. And I think those guys really, why haven't they done the research? You know, well, Ian, I have question. a question. It, I've talked to uh, three Chinese doctors because we have a, we have a TCM class at our program, actually, mm -hmm. and the, the the they all said they said this is not a vindication at all of TCM. They said you know if anything it's just a vindication of Western medicine, and they they seem to. I reject the term. Sorry, stop. Oh, bio. Okay, evidence-based medicine. I agree, Jeremy. I agree. Evidence-based bio, evidence bio. They call it biomedicine. They call it biomedicine. But I mean, the the point is that they were saying that that uh, in fact they were in despair because they said uh, this is just going to cause a you know more uh, a movement more in the in the well, direction of biomedicine and not TCM, which which they still agree with, they still believe. To, to sort of throw yeah. in a red herring, this is something I was going to save for at the end when we give our um, reading recommendations. Um, there is a really interesting article last year in Discovery by a science journalist named Eric Vance. Uh, the title is Why Nothing Works. And it's about scientists who are actually trying to harness the placebo effect. Mm. Um, and he's turning this research into a book. So he was in China a couple months ago looking at TCM. And I should first say, full disclaimer, I am on the side of thinking that most of Chinese traditional medicine, I, I am not a believer as, as Ian might be. Somewhere on the spectrum between Jeremy and Ian, I'm maybe 80% Jeremy. But, but I'm, I'm also not holding myself up as an expert. So I thought I would say this is not... My bringing up this topic is not to vindicate Chinese traditional medicine, but to say that in all kinds of medicine, there is an interaction between the, the, physical, the impacts of the physical compounds and something scientists are just beginning to try to understand and try to quantify, which is the placebo effect, or how do you sort of stimulate, I think the analogy that the, the Eric Vance, the science journalist uses, is something like, you know, sort of the mind's medicine cabinet, right? I mean, if, you give you, if I give you two pills and I tell you, you know, this is the really expensive aspirin, for, you know, I mean, it, th th this has been tested that people do tend to Absolutely feel like better. that yeah. has an effect. So I, so his idea, which I think at least bears bringing up in this discussion, is there's some aspect of Chinese traditional medicine or other kinds of traditional medicine in which describing how something fits into a worldview may act in a way that is conducive to healing, although not in a purely sort of... I think the placebo Drug effect has... You feel very condescended to now. Uh, no, I know. I, I, no, I, I, I the think... placebo effect is the polite way of slagging off this stuff instead of saying, well, you know, it might have an effect as the placebo effect. 
and so they've done some work. But, with but, but do, do do you believe that then that uh, the flow of chi between the five internal organs is really the determining factor? The theory doesn't matter to me so much. What I'm interested in the outcome, and if the outcome has well, there we share common ground. Effects, then right. I'm, I'm, then I'm I'm more curious. I don't really think the theory is clearly this really complex and esoteric edifice that's been built up sort of like some crazy house over the centuries. But if the outcomes work, then I think that's what should be looked at. Like if people come with problem X to a Chinese doctor and it's solved, then I think there should be research in why that's solved. Right. Now, if it's just a placebo effect, okay. No, no, but there's no there's no research on that level. By bringing up the placebo effect, I wasn't. It's not. I mean, he's looking at many things, not just Chinese traditional medicine. It wasn't meant to condescend in any way. But just to say that there's certain things that scientists to to the topic we've brought up before that our ability to test the efficacy is imperfect. And you know, Mm -hmm. this is one example. So let me move off off this topic, which you know I think we could end end up just just Shouting you know, at each other, exactly uh, for for a long time. But we don't. <laughs> I, I, Ian's passing everyone's TCM pills under the table. <laughs> I'm we actually. Don't to, we don't want to shun chi, you know, as this, exactly. right, right. <laughs> if you if you give birth to chi, that's right. not good. Um, one thing that I do, you know, have come to to have uh, quite a bit of belief in is um, how gut bacteria and the microbiome really affects so many things. There's been actually quite a bit of research that's been done on, uh, for example, on um, the relation between certain uh, gut bacteria uh, in lactobacillus, for example, and, uh, and, 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 and mental health. Right, and, and, absolutely. And, and, and. So, uh, Christina, you, you did a terrific piece in Foreign Policy uh, about a very young researcher by the name of Zhao Bowen, uh, who started off at the Beijing Genomics Institute, which is a very well-known, probably the most successful, uh, originally kind of within the system now sort of X system uh, right. biomedical startup. BGI, right? which used BGI, to be a part right. of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and now exists as a mostly private institute in Shenzhen, but they've kept the acronym, so they're called BGI, although they uh, it no longer stands in the for, sunny south. Right, yep. okay. It no longer stands for BGI in kind of the way that KFC no longer stands for Kentucky yeah, Fried exactly. Chicken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, but they, they've been, um, you know, pioneering a real independent path. I mean, they've been exalted quite early on and were made part of the CAS apparatus, and now they're, they're right. not, right? Uh, but tell, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in yeah. this guy, Chao Bowen. I mean, what a character. High school dropout, right? So how did he end up uh, being, like, one of the most widely fitted uh, celebrated young scientists in China as this kid who dropped out of high school. Um, well, I mean, so he's an interesting, you know, I mean, if 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 two, you know, if we started the conversation with two is an outlier, he's an outlier from the S&T system in a different way. So um, he, um, during high school, he basically spent most of his time with an internship at the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences. So learning lab work, skipping politics class. Um, and then he went to do an internship um, after his junior year at BGI in Shenzhen and had sort of hands-on experience, you know, participating in really interesting genomics research. Um, you know, he was uh, included in the uh, one of the co-authors of uh, an important paper in, I think, Nature, or one of Nature's publications, um, sequencing the genome of the cucumber at right, age right, 16 right. or 17. Um, so, you know, he just felt like, wow, this is really exciting. Why in the world should I go back to a year studying for the gal cow? Um, well, you know, specifically, yeah. he mentioned that. He was like, all I'm going to do is be jumping through hoops. 
when, you know, I can just dive right into the research here. And BGI in Shenzhen has a really interesting culture. It's, it's a couple guys um, who have, um, I mean, it was founded by some senior scientists who'd been part of the Chinese system for quite a while, but decided they would rather raise their own funding, both from government grants, from VC grants, um, through having scientists you know, in other countries pay for their sequencing services. Um, so pioneered this sort of entrepreneurial model of science. Um, and these guys are really, you know, they aren't interested in the standard qualifications of Chinese scientists. You know, if you have, or science around the world, if you have a PhD, if you have the right advisor. Um, so they saw this really smart kid and they let him start a really ambitious project to, um, see if it was possible to sequence, to see if there's possible to... Find consciousness in the, 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 uh, in, in the genetic code, right? Well, well, even, even more controversially, to see, if, to see what we can describe about the genetic roots of intelligence. Right. Okay, which is a, which is a, you know, a hugely... Was it intelligence or was it, it, was, it was just the cognitive abilities in general? But I mean, I, I well, yeah, he, this he, was back he, in, he in, in 13, say, right? I mean, I yeah, remember a couple years say, ago, there was this quite a bit of a flurry of news stories about this. Right, yeah. He, he would say cognitive abilities, okay. what we usually call intelligence. I mean, he, it's, a, it's an AI project, right, basically? I mean, they're interested in AI. Well, no, I mean, basically they were saying, look, you know, Ian, who is sitting next to me, is however tall Ian is, right? And, you know, what, what genes from his, you know, mother like and father's e side Chile, right. combined to make him, you know, plus environment combined to make him this height, right? And so some things like eye color may have a few genes that are affected, but height actually, you know, is a product, we think, of thousands of discrete gene alterate, you know, gene variations, and plus, you know, what you eat as a child and other things. So intelligence, to what extent there is a genetic basis, is a hugely complex task. It's something that you couldn't undertake to study until sort of the modern era of genome sequencing, you know, that allows, I mean, basically, you know, if it took, what, 10 years... It's also and, just so ethically fraught to even undertake something like sure, that. Sure, sure. And so there, so, so basically, it was something that, tech, until modern technology, if you think of the Human Genome Sequencing Project, 10 years, and I forget the total budget, but it was massive, right? Now you can sequence a complete human genome you know, for 3000 bucks in, you know, a week, right? Just because of the technology. 23 and me, yeah. Yeah, so it's, so it's really... Uh, and, uh, maybe, sorry, could I just interrupt? Because sure. I think um, I'd like to quote a paragraph from Christina's story that sort of uh, puts a bit of spice into the, uh, into the, uh, the story about Zhao, uh, which is that, but that hard work isn't what exhausts him, that being Zhao. Uh, rather, he's tired of talking about his age. Zhao is just 23. The international media have dubbed him a boy genius and a wunderkind. Zhao complains in English. When you're running a company, nobody gives a fucking care about your age. If you're 18 or 80, you're equal parts in the market. It actually does matter. This guy is kind of cool. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. also, Jeremy, you selected that paragraph to be read just because it contained the word fucking, right? <laughs> well, uh, yes. Right, right. But, I mean, basically, he, I mean, he and a lot of scientists, they want to be judged on merit. They don't want to be, right. they don't want to spend all their time making connections. And I think, you know, again, if, if we can draw different lessons from the example of two, um, you know, one argument is to say there have been a lot of incredibly talented people who were born and spent the early part of their careers in China, 
but they found success in later Nobel Prizes once they had entered into S&T systems outside China that allowed them to thrive. And that's how they won the Nobel, right? And so, you know, Zhao, who, who after BGI, he's founded his own genomics company, which, as Kaiser um, was mentioning, is focused now on sequencing gut bacteria and understanding, you know, if, I, if we sequence David's gut bacteria, how can we tailor, you know, um, medicine to him, right? You know, if you have certain problems, you know, just as we might ask before about, you know, did your mother have these symptoms? Is there a history of heart disease? You know, can we look at your gut bacteria and make personalized Yeah, I would like lots of big funding organizations working on my gut bacteria. But no, but well, you, you, you know, it's, it's actually, it's, you know, I mean, you know, it's there's, hugely, there's more cells important. in your microbiome than you have in, in the rest of the Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. But, but, and we can talk about the specific science, but just the, the macro point being that he, that he was, he didn't want to wait around in the existing system. So he's trying to build his own system. BGI has built its own system. Whether or not any of these systems will, you know, thrive in 10 years, people are impatient with what they have in front of them or are trying to construct something new. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and you can find analogies in the tech space and, and other... The, the point being that the, the success is not in the Chinese S&T system. They've created a, an alternative system out, outside that's actually doing... Right, right, right. And, and let me, let me step back and say, of course, there are lots of things that have been successful in the Chinese S&T system, but there are limitations too. Mm. And, you know, he's a, you know sassy 23-year-old who's, you know, then, you know, I, he didn't want to wait. Isn't, it, you know? isn't one of the criticisms of BGI, though, that they're doing, they're like an animation studio, that if you give a ton of shit to, they can crunch all the numbers. They've got all the people there. Well, is that kind of like two's not... research? I mean, mass, you know, mobilizing a lot of people cheaply to focus well, on. Well, but they're not, the point is that they're not Disney, right? They're not, like, actually creating the stuff, they're just crunching a lot of stuff. Like they haven't, like what has actually come out of this that's earth breaking? Well, that's a good point. There's a difference between a Manhattan project, which if you do throw a lot of expertise and money at it, you will you will get something because science is science versus trying to throw a lot of money at a new Apple See, corporation, well, right? You're not gonna get lot, creativity a lot of their work, out of that. Uh, so right. genomics is a relatively new field and a lot of their work has been descriptive. So, you know, the first right, exactly. description of, you know, basically how, you know, how, people of Tibetan ancestry are more adapted to right. high altitudes. Yeah, and, right, right, you know, right. the first sequencing of the right, different varieties of rice and what's right. more, you know, and this is another political issue, but, you know, what might be best to use in different climate, future climate scenarios. So it's not, I mean, it hasn't had a problem like we are trying to end malaria. It's, it's, it's been largely descriptive, but there's a big question in, in science and, the, the nature of the discussion is different in China. It's about sort of the role of big data, right? And there's um, actually BGI has started a magazine whose name escapes me right now. And it's, it's interesting. Um, and their, their idea is, you know, usually you have a thesis, right? And you go about trying to prove your thesis. And they said, what if you collect reams of data and look for patterns in the data, right? And they, you know, one of the reasons I think that BGI gets a lot of venture capital um, including from Sequoia Capital China and other, you know, sort of very, sort of, you know, Major top tier Sand VC Hill firms, Road, yeah, right? Yeah. Is this because they're building a huge genomics library, you know, plant, human, and animal. So if you think about future drug development, I mean, they, yeah. you know, they're building, like, yeah. it's an interesting model. It's not, it's not Isaac Newton science, but it's something that people are attaching value to. Yeah, it's yeoman's It seems work. like a lot of the interest is that, people are sure that something big is going to come out of China. 
and they're always looking for examples of this and whether and so this is why if you want to think of it really broadly people are like china is a big rising power it's exciting it's dynamic therefore there must be great literature being produced so we must give a nobel prize for literature to a chinese author because <laughs> sure. And I think sometimes the attention on, on science is similar. It's like they're throwing a crap load of money at this stuff and China's a big rising power and blah, blah, blah. So therefore, there must be stuff happening. But it seems like it's still at the speculative stage. And it may work. This may result in something. But it still seems like, yeah, absolutely. You know, so maybe again, not. Right? Yeah, if you look at the IP, I mean, you know, Jeremy, if you have the article in front of you, you could find the numbers if anyone wants them. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the amount of... Again, imperfect figure, but the amount of money that other c countries pay to use IP generated in China is minuscule, right? And, you know, just as one... And, and just the point that th throwing money at something in, for certain domains actually works. And you have the Human Genome Absolutely. Project that worked, and you also have Craig Ventner's project that also worked. And one was, uh, you know, national... Uh, funded, a federally funded program. The other was a private firm. So, and I think what it also probably shows is there's a lot of money sloshing around in China, yes. and there's a lot of people setting up venture capital funds, and a lot of yeah. people don't know what to do with their money. Right? They have bought ten apartments in Beijing already, and so they say, "Yeah, there's like we'll pour money into some startup." And so this is why a lot of stuff gets funded, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's based on the best. Hmm. VC funds, or VC principles, or whatever. So um, just to sort of wrap up, I mean, and to move on, uh, we have uh, a, a major theme here, which is sort of you know the, the top-down approach, the inside, the outside approach to to S and T development. Um, I'm curious to hear from Jeremy as to how the the uh, online communities in China are 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 engaging with this debate. Uh, what are they saying about about Tuyoyo, about um, the scientific establishment? What's the takeaway for most Chinese people? Is it just sort of a, oh, I'm I'm proud that this happened? Is this a vindication of TCM? There are a lot of themes here, but I'm curious to see Jeremy, you you as part of your work, you watch you know the uh, the, the 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 netizenry's reaction to these things. What are you hearing? Well well, I, I think actually Ian has captured really the substance of the debate in the article on the New York Times uh, published just uh, a few hours yeah, I think, a great before piece, we great recorded piece. this podcast, uh, which is titled Nobel Renews uh, Debate on Chinese Medicine. And despite uh, the fact that Ian and I probably don't see eye to eye on Chinese medicine, I think he's done a very fair review Extremely of fair, the debate yeah. both inside and outside of China. Um so I, I think on social media and uh, on sort of traditional media, you see a similar thing. Uh, there are people who are saying that this is wonderful, it vindicates Chinese medicine, uh, and there are people who are saying it doesn't, it vindicates the scientific method, uh, and there are people who support Chinese traditional medicine, uh, or uh, traditional Chinese medicine, I suppose, is the conventional phrase TCM, uh, who are saying that this is bad because uh, Tuyoyo actually wasn't doing traditional Chinese medicine. She, she was doing something else. Um, what about the other, the other debate, though? I think you see all of those things on social media. And I think uh, if you read Aaron's article, you, you, you'd get a good sense of, uh, at least as far as I know, uh, what the debate has been on social media. Hmm. So what about the insider-outsider debate? Is that, is that reflected at all in discussions that you're seeing online? The insider, uh, as in, you know, she, she wasn't a part of the uh, the, the establishment or of CAMS or yeah, yeah. That 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 has been. I mean, uh, from the f few postings that I've been reading on on, on Weibo and on, on my WeChat feeds, that does seem to be some part of the debate. 
is, you know, why wasn't she part of the establishment? Well, if you're interested uh, in that, definitely check out that piece by on it's on Forbes and now also on China File, I believe, um, by the CFR guy uh, Huang Yinzhong. Uh, it's 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 quite good. It's very critical, of course, but it's 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 very good. Um, well, I mean, that's we could go on, of course, for this. The, we've opened up several large cans full of worms, but um, let's let's let's, let's go. <laughs> Ian to, claims they'll help us our digestion. That's the biggest worm. Yeah, <laughs> I believe in the microbiome here. So, Jeremy, start us off with recommendations. Let's move on, and uh, let's, we've got five of us here to do them, so let's let's make them fairly quick. Okay. Well, I, I my first one was actually going to be Ian's article, which I've already recommended. So I think you should read that the Nobel Renews uh, debate on Chinese medicine. Um, on the New York Times. Uh, and then the second one I have is a book called A Guide to the Mammals of China uh, uh, by Andrew T. Smith and uh, Yen, uh, Xie Yen, um, which is basically a field guide to Chinese, to mammals in China, uh, which I've been, even though I'm now in Tennessee and not able to actually see the mammals of China with my own eyes uh, have been enjoying quite a lot. It's a field guide to Chinese mammals. What turned you on to that, Jeremy? But I want to know if there's a recipe section also. (laughs) Because he first misread the title. There is no recipe section. He misread the title as Mammaries in China and so (laughs) he bought the book. (laughs) The book, I think, uh, Xie Yan lives in Beijing. There was nobody from Guangdong involved in the the publication of the book. Oh, man. (laughs) Okay, Ian, what do you have for us? Um, I'll recommend a book called Neither Donkey Nor Horse by Sean Lay. Sean is S-E-A-N, Lay is L-E-I. He's with the Academica Sinica in in Taipei, and he's an anthropologist trained at the University of Chicago, and it's all about how Chinese medicine became this, was this sort of football, this symbol of China's efforts to modernize in the 20th century and how people um, attacked it and then tried to support it under the Mao era and these debates, I think it reflects a lot of Chinese history and efforts to come to terms with modernity. Sounds great. Yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. Okay, um, so first the article, Why Nothing Works by Eric Vance in Mm -hmm. Discovery, um, which is about the placebo effect and scientists attempt to understand it better. Um, second, there's an article called Corn Wars in the New Republic in the last oh, that was, maybe that was two amazing. or three months. Yeah. And it's basically about um, research on GMOs and corporate espionage between the U.S. Yes, and China. that was an no, amazing. Let me the, the recommend author... something that you actually wrote, which was really interesting, too, um, uh, about how difficult. I mean, I've made this recommendation before on the podcast. I'm not sure whether that episode has aired yet, but let me re- repeat that one. Uh, that was a great piece yeah. that you, you wrote about how GMOs. the difficulty of the Chinese scientific establishment, the Chinese government, to convince Chinese consumers that, that GMOs are essentially safe. Right. And that uh, was a piece for the New Yorker Science and Tech blog. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, right, that's where it was. Yeah. So, uh, great. Yeah, uh, the Corn Wars. That was right. a, and the author, Do you remember the author? Yeah, the author is, uh, I believe, Ted Genoise. He's written a book. I believe, called The Chain or something similar. Um, It's a really interesting look at the food supply chain, particularly of meat in the U.S. And he's based in um, the Midwest. So, you know, a lot of reporting, of course, in the U.S. comes from the East Coast and the West Coast. But he sort of situated himself very deliberately 
you know, to look at Nebraska and now, What Kansas I want to know is how did he, how does he get to listen to all these FBI tapes that were exactly, made? I mean, yeah. before they've been actually introduced into evidence in, in any kind of... You know, uh, that how, reporters how does, don't share their secrets and I don't know his secrets. Okay. That, <laughs> yeah, that but was, it's a great that, piece. That was it's a weird. Great piece. That, was, that was the weird part of me. David, what do you have for us this week? Uh, real quick, two, two books on traditional Chinese medicine, just for reference. Uh, one called The Web That Has No Weaver, that sure, Ian, I'm sure, knows by Ted Kapchuk. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Probably the clearest and fairest uh, sort of explanation of what it's really all about it, from a neutral sort of anthropological standpoint. And the other, a book by the author that uh, Ian quoted in his article, Volker Scheid, that we've also used, was called Chinese Medicine in Contemporary China. Not as good, but also worth reading. He's written a whole book on that. So those two books, if you want to understand Chinese medicine, at least from the, you know, the theoretical standpoint, from an anthropological or a cross-cultural standpoint, those are the two best books. <coughs> and I want to recommend something, a, a series uh, of amazing documentary series, actually, uh, by Mike Chinoy, who you all remember, uh, who was CN correspondent here, here in, in Beijing for many, many years, wrote the book China Live. Uh, he has done the series for, for the U.S. China uh, Center at, uh, at the U.S. China Institute at, at UC, USC, uh, produced by Clayton Dube, who, who Dube? Is, uh, Clay, how does Clay pronounce his last name? I don't actually know. Dube. Uh, the, the, the most recent one, I don't know if you guys saw this. This is Dube, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, Ian was making so joint, smoking, joint smoking motions. <laughs> Problem when you only read people's names all the time in yeah. literature. You know, you cite something. Oh, I love this 18th century Russian author. And yeah, whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, but anyway, it's the, the the latest and I think final installation in the series focuses on the year 2012. It's called Follow the Money, and it looks at oh my gosh, it's it's amazing about you know the whole Bosilai scandal and how that broke. So he talks to everybody, to Jeremy Page and to Ed Wong and to um, to, to of course um, the, Mike uh, Mike Forsyth and yeah David Barbosa and uh, it's it's an amazing piece. I mean, because it just it, it just reminds you how incredibly packed that year was. How <laughs> it was just amazing. Uh, but but before that, you know, he 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 looks all the way back to the coverage uh, news coverage of the American oh, of the the Chinese Civil War, uh, and and then everything since. And so it's focused on journalism very much as this show is focused on you know uh, the lens of journalism on on, on China. So great series. Uh, Chinoy did a tremendous job and uh it's 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 if you like Seneca you will love this it's on youtube right yeah it's on also on youtube but uh it's china.usc.edu slash assignment china it's called assignment china so hey that's a wrap guys hey ian thanks so much thanks a lot for and christina thanks for, for thanks. coming in it was uh really good to talk to both of you jeremy man it's good to have you back uh, thank you very much, Kaiser, and thank you, Ian and Christina and, and David. Uh, and you, 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 and uh, and Ian. I'll get you guys in a room together someday, and unless uh, you guys we'll do this uh, over a yeah. beer, it's probably yeah, better. Right. It's too bad that James couldn't join us, huh? I mean, he couldn't look, get uh, it's all cool. It's I, my first year in China, I used to make tea out of mahuang that I buy from Chinese medicine. Oh wow, uh, that's just stores. Doing so in, speed, in terms dude, of dude, so is... I so I know which is basically speed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in yeah. terms of you know, so, so I mean, you know, I have some 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 a little tiny bit of patience for Chinese medicine. Mm. Well, in terms got of me, compounds, got me high in my first year in China. <laughs> in, in terms of compounds, so I was just doing a, a an article for Science about tea, actually, 
And um, in, in Sichuanmana, they were saying that tea began actually as medicine before it was considered a drink. And in fact, wow. yeah. you know, the combination of caffeine and other things, which we now have names for, you know, I mean, there was something to boiling these leaves in water. Caffeine makes everything better. Indeed. All right. Hey, David, thanks for yeah. coming in. And uh, guys, we'll all see you next week on Syndicate Podcast. Take care.